You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. This is the fourth talk in our series entitled Seven Key Truths About Jesus. And our talk now is his bodily resurrection. We've talked about his virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary atoning death, and now we come to his bodily resurrection. The resurrection is obviously, I suppose, the key truth of the Christian faith. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ be not risen, our faith is vain. And I think that is perfectly clear. Um, I'm going to divide the talk into two parts, the evidence for the resurrection and then the implications of the resurrection. But because I'm talking largely to believers, the evidence for the resurrection will be somewhat briefer, simply because we believe the Bible and the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead, so that's enough for us. Uh, If you want more on the evidence for the resurrection uh, in my book, You'd Better Believe It, the relevant chapter there on the resurrection of Jesus, Uh, deals with the arguments for it in much more detail than I'm going to do this evening. So we're going to talk about the evidence for the resurrection first and then the implications of the resurrection. And I've titled the evidence for the resurrection as the most important question in the world and the second part, the implications of the resurrection, I am calling 10 Truths from the Empty Tomb. Mm. And that will be the main part of the talk this evening. Uh, in fact, that was all I was planning to do until uh, just perhaps a week ago, uh, in my daily Bible reading, I'm following Nikki Gumbel's Bible reading plan in a year, through the Bible in a year for 2019. And we got to Matthew chapter 28 and his uh, little devotional on the subject of the resurrection was so good that I am actually not going to do my own stuff on this. The most important question in the world, I'm going to read to you, most unusual thing, but give the credit to Nicky Gumbel, uh, in case you're not sure who he is, of course, the founder of Alpha. And uh, what a great work that is and... uh, what wonderful things God has used Nikki uh, to do. So here it is, the most important question in the world. The brilliant professor of philosophy at London University, C.E.M. Jode, was not a Christian. He was asked on a radio programme, if you could meet any person from the past and ask them just one question, whom would you meet and what question would you ask? Professor Jode answered without hesitation, I would meet Jesus Christ and ask him the most important question in the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? There came a day in Professor Jode's life when he assessed the evidence, encountered Jesus himself and wrote a book called Recovery of Belief. If Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, this changes everything. 
The resurrection isn't just an historical fact or religious idea, it is a life-changing reality. God promises that as you go about fulfilling his commission, the presence of the resurrected Jesus goes with you. In Matthew 28, when the woman when the women see the empty tomb, the angel tells them, He is not here. He has risen. You will see him. Verses 6 and 7. All this from Matthew 28. Filled with great joy, they ran to tell the disciples. As they did so, Jesus met them. Verse 9. They experienced the presence of the risen Jesus. Verses 8 to 10. Clasped his feet. Verse 9. And worshipped him as God. Verses 9 and 17. The attempts of others to explain away the empty tomb began very early, indeed, even in this chapter, verse 13. And in spite of all the evidence, not everyone believed, verse 17. It was suggested that his disciples stole him away while the soldiers were asleep. Some people still postulate this explanation, but it does not fit the evidence. The disciples were discouraged and frightened. Only the miracle of the resurrection could have transformed them. They did not expect to see Jesus to rise from the dead. They did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They had no motive to steal the body. The tomb was heavily guarded. They were not the only ones who saw Jesus. Many others saw him after the resurrection and interacted with him over a period of 40 days. Acts 1, 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. If the disciples did steal the body, their whole lives thereafter were based on a lie. My friend, that's Nicky Gumbel speaking, not me. My friend Ian Walker, a Cambridge scientist, became a Christian because he could not believe that the disciples would have been willing to be tortured and put to death for something they would have known was not true. It really is true. Jesus is risen. Death and burial are not the end. In Christ, you too will be raised from the dead. That ends the reading from Nicky Gumbel's devotional, but I thought that was quite inspiring. And just to pick up on that thought about uh, the, they wouldn't have been willing to be tortured or put to death for something they knew was not true. I often used to say to the school children when I was teaching RE many, many years ago, uh, just imagine that I, David Petz, had invented a religion called Petzianism. And I did it because I wanted to make money out of it, or I, or I wanted to get glory to myself out of it, and so on. So I had wrong motives, but I'd invented this religion called Petzianism. But then they threatened to torture me and put me to death if I did not deny Petzianism. What do you think I would do? You'd better believe it. I would pretty quickly deny Petzianism and acknowledge that it wasn't true and save my skin. And most intelligent people would too. I think that is that line of thought is a powerful argument for the resurrection of Jesus. So, as I've said, we've dealt with that very briefly because we're talking primarily to believers and... Uh, 
Well, if you want more on it, actually there are many books that have been written on this, as well as the chapter in my book, You'd Better Believe It, which will give you a bit more detail on some of the arguments. So that brings me to part two of this talk, which will probably be a little bit longer than part one was. And I've called that Ten Truths from the Empty Tomb. Five truths about God and then five truths about us as Christians. Okay? And we've got one or two verses for each of these truths. The first one is what I've called the existence of God. Have you realized that actually the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a proof that there is a God? Because actually, without a God, it couldn't have happened. Think about it. And so 1 Peter 1.21 says, Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now, the two levels of believing in God in this verse, firstly, you're believing in the existence of God because Jesus was raised from the dead, but also your faith and hope are in God. In what connection? Well, if, Jesus, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise us from the dead as well, a truth we will come back to later in this talk. So the existence of God is the first truth about God. Actually, having studied philosophy at Oxford and taught a little bit of uh, philosophy also at Bible College, um, I think the most powerful argument for the existence of God is what is called the Christological argument. Now, I don't want to get into this at great length, but uh, philosophers have come up with all kinds of things. There's the ontological argument, there is the cosmological argument, there is the teleological argument, and I'm not going to get into any of those this evening, um, and Jonathan could tell you more about it probably than I can, uh, as I'm a bit rusty on those things. But to me, you can argue in and out through some of these theories of trying to prove the existence of God. The issue is this, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? And when you come to believe in Jesus, it's through him that you believe in God, because he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, take a look at Jesus. So the the argument for the existence of God is Christological, okay, rather than anything else. That's where you begin. Okay, that was point number one of my ten truths, so we better move along quickly. The existence of God then. The second thing, the truth of the word of God. Look at Acts 2, verses 24 and 25. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the pains of death, because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, why? You could actually come up with several reasons why it wasn't possible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. One, he was God. Two, if you like, he was the prince of life. And you, you could come up with all those things. But Peter actually doesn't use any of those reasons. He says it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him for, and I'm referring now to the authorised version here because NIV 
lift, lift, leaves out this word, I assure you in the Greek text it is there, for David said about him, and he quotes from Psalm 16, uh, thou wilt not leave his soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. It wasn't possible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Why? Because the word of God declared that he would not be left in the grave. So the resurrection of Jesus vindicates the truth of the word of God. See, I, I think, I, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I'm not sure. Or is it the cart and the horse that we could be talking about here? But why do I believe? Um, I, don't think I, be, I don't think I came to believe because I, I believed the Bible and then came to believe in Jesus, though for some people it may be that way round. But for many people, it's the other way round. You come, are confronted with Jesus, and when you're confronted with Jesus, you then come to believe in the Bible because Jesus believed in the Bible and because Jesus' resurrection proved the truth of the Bible as it is here. So the resurrection of Jesus, second truth from the empty tomb, the word of God is true. Third truth from the empty tomb, the power of God. Look at Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. I pray, says Paul, that you may know, I'm leaving some verse, words out here, I'm just summarizing it. I pray that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Wow. And, and what a tremendous thing it is when you think about it. He, he, he was crucified. He was dead. There's no question about the fact that he was dead. They finished him off, if you like, with, or they made sure he was dead by sticking a spear into his side. They were absolutely certain about this. And the usual practice was to break the bones of the, break the legs of the victims to make absolutely certain. Uh, and they didn't need to with Jesus because they knew he was dead and he was buried. Ha! Huh. And then I love that passage in Matthew 28 where it says, the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone from the mouth of the tomb and sat upon it. <laughs> I love that. He sat upon it. What a great big stone that two women felt completely incapable of moving. What's a stone to an angel, a messenger of God? He rolls it back and sits on it. Total authority over it because of the power of God. Yes, so the resurrection is a demonstration of the power of God. And we've got to say <laughs> that Paul in these verses actually relates it to us. He wants us to know, and this power, this great power, is incomparable. There is no power that you can compare with it. There is no power in the universe that you can compare with the power of the creator because every power in the universe is power within creation which the creator made. He's the creator. So it's incomparably great power, but it's incomparably great power for us who believe. Wow! 
The power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead is available to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. The resurrection is a demonstration of the existence of God, of the truth of the word of God, of the power of God, and of the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Point number four. Romans 4. Sorry, Romans 1 and verse 4. Declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. That's why they crucified him. It was perfectly clear that that's what what he said meant during his earthly life that he was claiming to be the son of God and they crucified him. But God vindicated his claim to be the son of God by reversing the crucifixion, if you like, by raising Jesus from the dead. So he's declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the resurrection is a proof of the deity of Jesus. He's the son of God. And wow, now here's a more solemn one. The judgment day of God. Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 verse 31 said, He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has been given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. I think it was last time when we were talking about Jesus' substitutionary atoning death that we said that death was necessary to save us from the consequence of our sins. And some people just don't like the idea when we, when we talk about God judging, God's judgment, God's punishment. And of course, nobody wants to be punished. But boy, do they want other people to be punished. Oh yes, they most certainly do. And there is something within every single one of us that cries out for justice. The only hope for ultimate justice in the world is God himself. And we've got to believe that God is a God who judges. And he's done it. He's set a day when he will judge the world. He will do it with justice. It will be absolutely fair. And he'll do it, God will do it, by the man he has appointed. Who's that? Jesus. And it's actually by your reaction to Jesus that you will ultimately be judged. And he's given proof of all this to all people by raising him from the dead. None is excluded. All will stand before the judgment seat of God. Thank God for Christians, our sins have been judged already at Calvary. And the only judging that will be done for us is for rewards for service. That's a big subject in itself. 
Let's summarise the five truths about God. The existence of God, the word of God, the power of God, the son of God and the judgment day of God. All evidenced by the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in dealing with that, we've already touched on some truths about the Christian. But let's pick out five that I have seen which follow on from this. Firstly, we have been born again because Jesus was raised from the dead. Not just because he died for us, but because he was raised. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, which fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by faith through the power of God unto salvation, Peter says. Wow! What a wonderful passage. Now you see, he's given us new birth. That suggests newness of life. So you see, it's not just that Jesus died so that our sins might be forgiven, but he was raised from the dead so that we might live in newness of life. He's not just paying the penalty for our sins, but he's raised from the dead in order that new life, new birth may come to us. We who were dead in sins have been made alive in Christ because he was made alive, because he was raised from the dead. You can't separate the crucifixion from the resurrection or vice versa. They are inextricably linked and inexplicably. I nearly said inexplicably. But uh, we do our best to do the explaining. But uh, yeah. Second truth. We're accounted righteous because of the resurrection. Romans 4, 24 and 25. God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Picking up exactly the truths I was mentioning in the previous verses. And was raised to life for our justification. So Peter has said it one way. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul is saying the same thing in a slightly different way. He credits us with righteousness. In other words, we are justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous. God credits righteousness to us even though we've been sinners. He counts us as righteous. Because we believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, and he's delivered over to death for our sins, but he's raised to life again for our justification in order that we might be declared righteous. And I said jokingly a moment ago, inexplicable, not just inextricable. Yes. Well, you know, it is kind of inexplicable, isn't it? It's pretty difficult to tease all that out. But it's there. It's in the word of God. And we believe it. Third truth of the five truths about the Christian. We are continually being saved. I like that. 
you know there are three tenses of salvation. I have been saved, I am being being saved, and I've yet to be saved. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believe, talking about the second coming. So I've been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin as he enables me to live in victory over sin. And I will be saved ultimately from the presence of sin when I go to heaven. Oh, how wonderful. And so, Romans 5, 9 and 10. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were sinners, we were reconciled by his death, how much more shall we be reconciled by his life? So again, it's not just the death of Jesus, but it's the resurrection of Jesus that is part of this whole process of our justification, our reconciliation, our new birth. And so Paul says in Romans 8, 34, Christ was raised to life and is interceding for us. And the talk after next, we will be talking about his heavenly ministry and how he is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you right now. What a wonderful truth. We are continually being saved. And so, again, parallel truth. We walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verse 4. As Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. Romans 7, 4, raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. And of course, that's symbolized in baptism, water baptism, where we are immersed. It's all there in Romans 6. You are, you've died to Christ. Sorry, you've died to sin. You've come alive in Christ at the new birth. At baptism, you are buried and you come up to walk in newness of life, symbolic of the resurrection. Only immersion baptism makes any sense of that imagery that Paul is using there in Romans chapter 6. So, as he was raised from the dead and lives by the power of an endless life, so we have been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, that we might walk in newness of life and we will be raised from the dead physically as well. Which brings me to the final point, the tenth truth from the empty tomb. We will rise from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, and this is something we could perhaps talk about in more detail another time. But Paul talks about Christ as the first fruits of resurrection. And after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And it's very interesting, actually, if you go back into Numbers, that there were two offerings of first fruits. And they were seven weeks apart. I think one was to do with the barley harvest and the other was the wheat harvest, or that kind of thing. And the first sheaf of the harvest was offered to God, first fruits, just as the first lamb of the flock was offered to God, and so on. And what is interesting is that the first one happened on the Sunday 
after Passover. Which, of course, was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection, hundreds of years, over a thousand years before, Moses, under God, institutes uh, a ceremony, if you like, a thanksgiving to God, and it's the first fruits. And so Paul refers to this, Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. The other first fruits is actually come seven weeks later at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit as well. But that, hey, that's a subject all on its own, and I'm digressing. And it's time I finished. All right, so we're going to rise from the dead. First fruits, 1 Thessalonians 4:14. Jesus died and rose again. And God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Oh, don't worry, you people, if your loved ones have died already. You don't have to worry about it because he's coming back and God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. How wonderful. And don't worry about yourselves because we who are alive and remain are going to be uh, caught up also with them to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to rise from the dead. 2 Corinthians 4.14 We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. How wonderful. And actually, I think that's the most significant thing. Into his presence. Hey, it's not just the resuscitation of a corpse. And I remember having a television interview some years ago. Some of you may remember when David Jenkins was the Bishop of Durham and denied the resurrection. And, and immediately after that, he, he was instituted at York Minster. York Minster was struck by lightning. Do you some of you remember this? Back in 1984. And I went on television in, in a brief interview, uh, they hardly call it a debate, with a so-called Christian minister who, who supported Jenkins' view, Jesus didn't rise from the de dead literally, physically. And, uh, and I obviously put the, the biblical position. Uh, perfectly clear that he rose bodily from the dead. And this fellow said, well, you can, it, it's surely more than the resuscitation of a corpse. Well, of course the resurrection of Jesus was more than the resuscitation of a corpse. You can use all the emotive language you like to poo-poo the idea of the resurrection, but it was a supernatural miracle on the part of God. And it's going to take, dare I suggest it, an even greater supernatural miracle to raise from the dead all the believers who've died ever since Jesus died. <laughs> when you consider how many have been cremated, how many have perished at sea, and so we could go on. But God is able to do it. And we're all going to get, we're all going to get resurrection bodies. Hallelujah. But the point is, it's not just to get a new body. And live on the way we are right now. Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to have a body which is incorruptible, which is immortal, which is incapable of death. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, it's clear that to inherit the kingdom of God, you are going to need a new body. This body isn't fit for the kingdom of God. This mortal 
must put on in immortality. This corruptible body must put on incorruption. And that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. How absolutely wonderful. And we're going to be in his presence. What's heaven going to be like? I haven't the faintest idea. I'm not sure the streets are really going to be paved with gold. But I tell you, the important thing for me is I shall be in his presence. Yes. And so will you if you believe in Jesus. God bless you. Amen. <laughs>